This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. I want to tell you about a great new podcast called Outside the Box. If you're a maker, an innovator, or even just a consumer who wants to peek behind the curtain of some of the world's greatest organizations, you'll love it. The latest episode features interviews with the visionaries who are creating systems that bring our work, and more importantly, our workforce, into the 21st century. Because although we're plugged in at home, when it comes to the workforce, we're lagging behind. Listen to Outside the Box in Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, enjoy the show. Today, the World Anti-Doping Agency suspended Russia's sports drug testing lab. 99% of Russian athletes are guilty of doping. It's worse than we thought. If this is true, it is an unimaginable level of criminality. I was helping to facilitate one of the most elaborate doping ploys in sport history. This goes all the way back to 1968. Every sport was Putin aware of the existence of the Russian doping system. Yes. We are top-level cheaters. that has the potential of affecting the credibility of all sport. Why would I watch an event that's fixed? You in any danger? Yes. Oh, I need to escape. Putin will kill me. Holy shit. Putin calls the claims the slander of a turncoat. Two people connected with the Russian doping program are already dead. There never was anti-doping in Russia, ever. Hi, I'm Ben Mathis, and welcome to Kick-Ass News. That was a trailer for a shocking new documentary called Icarus, which hits Netflix in theaters this Friday, August 4th. The project began when amateur cyclist Brian Fogel was incredulous at the news that his hero, Lance Armstrong, had competed using performance-enhancing drugs and passed over 500 anti-doping tests. So Fogel set out to make a film in which he himself would use performance-enhancing drugs in preparation for the world's toughest amateur cycling event, the Haute Route, and prove once and for all just how easy it is for athletes to cheat the World Anti-Doping Agency's drug tests. To advise him on his doping regimen, he sought the help of a Dr. Strangelove-like scientist named Grigory Rodchenkov, who did all of the anti-drug testing for Russian athletics. What followed resembles a John le Carré thriller as the news broke that the same scientist helping Brian Fogel was at the center of a massive state-sponsored conspiracy to dope Russian athletes competing in the Sochi Olympics. As Fogel delves deeper into the rabbit hole of corruption, deceit, and danger, it soon becomes apparent that the Russian government has been systematically doping its athletes for every Olympic game since 1968, calling into question the results of every competition in which an athlete ever lost to a Russian. 
Today, Brian Fogle comes on the podcast to talk about his remarkable film and the scandal that rocked the Olympics and set off an international crisis. He discusses how he used himself as a human guinea pig to prove just how easily athletes can cheat anti-drug tests, and he shares how he experienced firsthand the power and the limitations of human growth hormones. He talks about the quirky scientist who helped him and the unlikely friendship that quickly evolved. Brian Fogel reveals how Russia's FSB agents helped athletes at the Sochi Olympics cheat the system, just how high the scandal goes, and why he calls his friend Gregory Russia's Edward Snowden. He'll also discuss the reaction when he presented this evidence to the officials at the World Anti-Doping Agency, and he'll speculate on why the International Olympic Committee ignored WADA's recommendations and still allowed Russian athletes to compete in the 2016 Olympics in Rio. Coming up with documentary filmmaker Brian Fogel in just a moment. Brian Fogel is the director of a gripping new feature documentary called Icarus, which recently won awards at the 2017 Sundance Film Festival and Sundance Film Festival London. It comes out in select theaters and on Netflix on Friday, August 4th. Brian, thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me, Ben. Well, this film is completely insane. I really enjoyed it, but this film just starts off as one thing and gets crazier and darker and more surreal as you get further through the looking glass with this Russian doping scandal. But before we even get into all that, what was your original idea when you began making this documentary in, what was it, 2014? Uh, yeah, it was 2014. Um, and the original idea had had come from my passion. Uh, my, I've had a lifelong passion for cycling. Um, I raced bikes, actually, from the time I was 12 till I was almost 20. And so it's been something that's been a, a, an ongoing part of my life. And the idea really came from when Lance Armstrong confessed, uh, which was January of 2013. And what was startling to me about his confession was not that he had been doping because everybody of his generation was doping, but the fact that he had managed to evade to this day 500 anti-doping tests clean, yeah. meaning that the science had utterly failed. I mean, if the most tested athlete on planet Earth had <laughs> been able to get through 500 anti-doping tests, I'm going to myself, uh, what is wrong with this system, not what is wrong with Lance? Mm -hmm. And I started calling all these scientists and reaching out with this idea uh, that I was going to make a documentary film. And I wasn't quite sure what it was going to be yet, but I thought that there was more to this story than met the eye. Mm -hmm. And every scientist I spoke to essentially was telling me that the system didn't work, that there were myriads of loopholes around it, that what Lance had done could essentially still be done, that there were so many flaws in this system that none of them saw uh, a clear path to clean sports, I guess you would call it. And from talking to these scientists and my passion from cycling and Lance and the whole thing, I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool to kind of do a Super Size Me movie? Uh, mm -hmm. that Where you're I, the guinea pig. 
Exactly. <laughs> and I'll dope myself because we never see that on camera. And at the same time, I'll find an advisor, a scientist, an expert to tell me what to do and how to do it, essentially like what Lance did. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to document this on camera. And hopefully if I evade detection and my results uh, are better too because I was very curious on a personal level what exactly these hormones and drugs did, um, that not only would it be a really interesting film, but that it would present the question to the world of what do we do with this philosophy of clean sport when the system itself uh, is ineffective in catching anyone. Mm-hmm. And that was and that was the the original idea, the movie that I set out to make. And what you did was you took on a doping regimen in preparation for, I, I think it's called Hote Race, is that right? No, the Hote Route. Oh, the Hote Route. And this oh. was an amateur race, right? Yeah. I should point uh, out that you weren't racing professionally in yeah, doping. Yeah, which was part of it. You which know, I, I fi- guess is a distinction. Yeah, I figured, hey, look, uh, I'm, a, I'm an amateur cyclist. I mean, I was making a film, but... Uh, so I'm not going into these events to really cheat anybody. I'm not mm-hmm. stealing money or prize money or professional contract. And so I was able to ethically uh, justify that to, to myself because mm-hmm. um, to me it was, hey, I'm making a film. Um, and uh, the race, uh, I read about this race in this cycling magazine that was um, billed as the hardest amateur cycling event on planet Earth. It's a seven-day race through the French Alps, and what they do is they take essentially the seven hardest days of the Tour de France. So it's all (laughs) climbing. And every day of this race is uh, somewhere between 80 to 110 miles and anywhere between 12,000 to 17,000 feet of climbing a day. Uh, where you're going over like three or four major mountains in the Alps, and it's just utter insanity. And so I read about this race, and I'm like, um, wow, this sounds crazy. And <laughs> what if I do this race clean the first year? And then the second year, I go back and dope uh, with the idea that I could come back and win it or see how much better uh, I did. And in that process, also evade positive detection mm-hmm. and be clean. Um, and so that was what I set out to do and uh, racing through the French Alps uh, as Armstrong did and the Tour de France seemed like the fitting place to to go and do that. Yeah. And what was the difference between when you had previously raced clean and the next time when you raced on performance enhancing drugs? Well, um, I was taking essentially a, a regimen of uh, testosterone and HGH and HCG and thyroid and DHEA and uh, and erythropoietin, which is increases your red blood cell uh, uh, count so that you have more oxygen uh, capability. And the biggest difference, um, which I think is this kind of misperception in society, is it's not like taking all this stuff and you turn into Superman. Uh, right. It doesn't negate the training. It doesn't negate having to be a spectacular athlete and also have spectacular genetics because only the best of the best of the best, doping or not doping, are ever going to get to play at the professional level. Um, But the biggest thing that that for me that it did was recovery. (laughs) And and it also opened up all these questions in my mind as to kind of the 
the ethics or the um, the perception in the public behind this doping, what we call it. Because for me, I didn't find that I was a different athlete. All that I found is that I could go out and suffer for five hours and kill myself just as I had before, except the next day uh, I had recovered pretty well so I could go out and kill myself again. <laughs> uh, and so the real difference was in that first year, I walked out of that race and and I don't show it really, but I walk out of that race and I I went into three weeks of physical therapy. I couldn't even walk. I had wow. Achilles tendonitis. I had hip dysplasia. I was a physical mess from what I'd put my body through. And the second year uh, on 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 all the hormones, um, I didn't technically do better. I had a, a crash. I had a, a technical problem with my bike. The, the shifting broke, but. On a physical level, I mean, I felt like a different person. I suffered just as much, but the difference is, is by day seven of that race, I could have continued into day eight, day nine, day 10, day 11, day 12. I was actually feeling myself recovering mm-hmm. and doing better uh, rather than my body deteriorating. And uh, uh, that was a huge, a huge difference. Is that why doping is so pervasive, specifically in competitive cycling? Because it is a multi-day sport. It's not like pole vaulting. So recovery is very important. You have to be able to get back on the bike the very next day and feel 100%. Well, I I think uh, certainly that has uh, lent itself to um, the problem, and it's hard to know where that stands exactly today. I mean, cycling is certainly a lot cleaner, but, uh, you know, when... You're in an event which is essentially pushing the boundaries of what a human being can do. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you look at these races, 21 days uh, with two rest days, you know, covering, you know, 3,000 miles. I mean, it's 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 physical insanity, the idea that you're <laughs> going to wake up every day and go do this again. Yeah. Uh, and and um, so, you know, certainly that would be the draw. But I think also what I... What I uh, discovered is that I think that the problem, if you want to call it a problem, is so, so far beyond cycling and that it's actually at this point cycling the sport that is probably the most managed Hmm. and pretty much the vast majority of other sports on planet Earth uh, are like where cycling was, uh, you know, in the the 1990s and the... uh, uh, and the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Were you at all scared at how this might impact your health? You know, initially I was, you know, and, and of course, you know, all my friends and my family, they were all like, oh my God, oh, you're going to get cancer. You're going to do this. And, but then as I started speaking to all these scientists and doctors, all of them were essentially telling me, no, this really isn't harmful. You'll be fine. Just make sure to get your blood checked, monitor your levels, um, as long as you don't let your hematocrit, uh, which is the amount of uh, red blood cells in your body, go over, you know, a, a certain point, you know, there's really no danger of a stroke or, or a heart attack. And that essentially what you're doing, at least for what I was doing, was taking hormones, mm-hmm. uh, which is what your body makes. Right. So, okay. so I kind of got over um, that fear once you get used to injecting yourself and the needles <laughs> and all that stuff, I got over that fear pretty early on. Um, my bigger fear was really the race 
and cycling itself, which is, you know, I kept going, oh, my God, if I crash at 70 miles an hour going down a mountain, uh, maybe I'll die. Um, and uh, also, what is that going to do for the movie? The whole <laughs> the whole movie at the time is over if I take a crash. So I was just more worried about yeah. um, uh, physically uh, <laughs> crashing and not so much um, – uh, the drugs, hormones that I was taking. And how did your fellow cyclists take the news when they found out that you had doped for that race? Well, uh, I didn't tell anyone during that race, um, but people in that race I wasn't personal friends with. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, certainly uh, as the film took this spectacular pivot and where it now went, I think anybody who might have went, you shouldn't have done that, I think would have a different assessment of the situation now uh, and go, wow, I'm glad you started on that journey because mm -hmm. you uncovered something a, whole, a lot bigger. And you were able to completely avoid detection? Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, after the second race, I bring all of my urine samples, and I had done about 30 blood tests uh, up to that point to basically build my biological passport and uh, and to bring all my urine for testing to the Moscow laboratory because the race itself was not testing as they said they were. Okay. Uh, so what I did was I would collect my urine basically uh, every day, you know, like hypothetically <laughs> had they been showing up to take my urine. Okay. So I, I, was, I was collecting yeah. my urine and storing it and freezing it. And I had got my blood drawn right before the race, right after the race. I'd got my blood drawn and the weeks up to it to, to build the biological passport for actually for months up to it. And, and I brought all my urine to Moscow. And that was September 2015. And Gregory was in the process of analyzing it. And the whole thing is that because his laboratory was under investigation, but also because he should have never been analyzing my samples in his water lab, mm -hmm. these unmarked samples that are not coming in through any sort of, you know, uh, regular protocol. He had to, you know, uh, do this, you know, on, on the lowdown. <laughs> so he was in the process of doing that. Uh, he had essentially uh, built my biological passport, and that was looking uh, really good. There was one point on it that he thought – uh, could be open for, for question. Um, and uh, before I got all the results back, because this investigation's going, Watt is in his lab, yeah. um, the other shoe falls, and he's suddenly, you know, being alleged to be the mastermind of this <laughs> spectacular scandal. And all of a sudden, it also didn't matter whether or not I got through yeah. clean, because you sat there and go, well, as long as you had a scientist or somebody on the inside who was willing to cover up your tests, who cares what you were taking yeah. to begin with? Yeah, and as the documentary goes on, the film really does become less about you and more about this scientist, Gregory Rodchenkov. Um, tell us a little bit more about who he is and how he came into your life. Uh, well, well, Gregory uh, at the time was running the third largest WADA lab, World Anti-Doping Agency laboratory in the world, which was the Moscow lab. And uh, so Gregory was overseeing the testing of all Russian athletes across all sports. Um, he was overseeing the testing of all international athletes that came to Russia to compete. 
and he had also overseen the testing for the Sochi Olympics, which at the time that I met him, he had just finished uh, doing all the testing for the Sochi Olympics. Um, so Gregory was a, a very uh, big and powerful force in in this world as the laboratory director. Um, I get introduced to him through a retired American scientist, uh, Don Catlin, who I had originally went to with the idea to help me uh, evade detection. Don basically uh, liked the idea, thought that I could get around the system, but didn't want to be the one personally uh, helping me do that. And um, said, hey, I, I, have, I know this guy in, in Russia because he had worked with him, you know, through various anti-doping uh, agencies through the years and, and had met Gregory many, many times and thought that Gregory might be willing to help me. Um, and uh, he puts me in touch with Gregory and we start corresponding over about six months and he agrees to help me. Uh, and in so doing, he's going to advise me what to take and how to take it. And, and also that he's agreeing that he's going to test my samples in his Moscow laboratory. So that was crazy in and of itself. I mean, yeah. at that moment, it was like I'd hit the jackpot uh, in the first film I was making because, <laughs> oh my God, I've got this Russian scientist who's running, who's at the third largest lab. He's running the anti-doping system and he's agreeing to test me and smuggle my urine into his laboratory. <laughs> this is going to make a great movie. And uh, and that's how I uh, I came to to meet Gregory and then over, you know, uh, the next year and a half uh, before the, the next shoe drops, uh, we just become great friends mm -hmm. because we were working together so closely from, from across the seas. But then he came to Los Angeles. I right. came to Moscow. We were Skyping <laughs> two, three times a week. Um, yeah, it does seem like you two became pretty close friends over those three years. Um, it would seem that he would have everything to lose by helping you evade detection and especially doing so on camera. Why do you think that he took such a risk to help you? You know, I've been asked this question many times and, uh, and certainly, uh, that was an incredible risk because he shouldn't have been doing that. Um, but you know, as you see in the film, Gregory is just this really gregarious, yeah. lovable, um, you know, he, you can't put this guy into words once you yeah. see him. It's like a character <laughs> that you can't believe. So to get inside his mind is is a very difficult thing. Yeah. But, you know, he had been involved in this system for so long. I think um, he viewed me as an amateur. So I think there was a, a part with him where he's like, oh, well, I'm, you know, you're not a professional. I'm not really helping a professional do this. Um, there was an investigation that was... Uh, spiraling around him, and I think that he probably saw this as a potential lifeline. But yeah. I think the biggest reason uh, was we had a trust and we had a friendship. And I told him all along through the process, you know, when he said, I said, look, you know, I want to let you know that, you know, let's go do this. We're going to film. We're going to go make this thing. And at the end of the day, before this movie were to be released, I'll come to Russia or you'll come to Los Angeles. I'll show you the movie. And if there, and if you think that this is going to be harmful to you or this is going to destroy you, we'll figure out what to do as a team. And um, 
And those were the discussions that we had, and I think that also allowed this incredible trust to develop between us because he was so candid on camera, as you see, and just would say the wildest things. And I think he he knew and trusted at the end of the day that I had his best interests at heart. We're going to take a quick break, and then we'll continue with Brian Fogle, director of the Netflix documentary Icarus, when we come back in just a moment. Hey guys, do you hate shopping for clothes? Well, now there's an easier way to get better clothes, Bombfell. Bombfell is an online personal styling service that helps men find the right clothes for them. And unlike other services, there are no fees to work with them, so it costs nothing to sign up. It's simple and straightforward. All you have to do is complete a questionnaire, and a dedicated personal stylist will handpick pieces specially for you. Then, once you've viewed your selections, you'll have 48 hours to make any changes or even cancel altogether. You're in total control, and you only pay for the clothes you keep. Plus, you have the option of receiving clothes once every one, two, or three months because Bombfell is on your side, and they don't make money if you don't find something you want to keep. I just got my first order from Bombfell. I gave my stylist my measurements and answered just a few questions about my style and what I like. He came back to me with a hand-picked outfit just for me. My stylist selected a beautiful sports jacket made out of high-quality linen, perfect for the summer, along with a button-down and a polo shirt that go great with my new jacket or on their own. I was able to change the color if I want, and if I'm ever not in love with the selection, I just say so and my stylist comes back to me with a totally new selection. And these weren't some weird off-brand items. We're talking quality, fashionable clothes that fits great. Plus, it was easy and fast, and I didn't have to waste a lot of time in a store. I love good clothes, and that's why I really love Bombfell. Best of all, I've negotiated with Bombfell to get my listeners a special offer of $25 off your first purchase when you go to bombfell.com slash kick. That's bombfell, spelled B-O-M-B-F-E-L-L, dot com slash kick. Today's show is also brought to you by Away. Away offers high-quality luggage that's designed to be resilient, resourceful, and essential to the way you travel. Available in nine colors and four sizes, including carry-on sizes that are compliant with all major U.S. airlines, the Away suitcase is lightweight and unrivaled in strength and impact resistance. Not to mention it features a TSA-approved combination lock, four 360-degree spinner wheels, and a patent-pending compression system to help overpackers. Better yet, both sizes of carry-on are able to charge anything that's powered by a USB cord. And get this, a single charge will power your iPhone five times. Plus, thanks to Away's lifetime warranty, if anything breaks, they'll fix or replace it for you for life. I just received my new rolling carry-on from Away last night, and it is definitely the coolest bag I have ever owned. It's as if I thought of everything I would possibly want as a traveler and designed the bag myself. It has a sturdy, hard shell that takes a beating, and yet it also expands to fit more stuff. It's got lots of compartments to keep me organized, and the USB charging station in the bag is probably the smartest idea I've seen in ages. You know how you're always at the airport when your phone dies and you're fighting with some other guy over a single electrical socket? Sitting on the dirty floor charging your phone because there are no chairs near the outlet? No more. You charge your device from your bag wherever you want. 
I can't rave about this carry-on enough. Away truly thought of everything. So try Away for 100 days. Travel with it, really put it to the test, and see if you'll like it. And if at any point you decide it's not for you, return it for a full refund. Shipping is free within the lower 48 states, so you've got absolutely nothing to lose. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com kick and use promo code kick during checkout. That's awaytravel.com kick for $20 off your away suitcase. And now, back to the show. Midway through the documentary, as he's helping you with your doping regimen, the scandal breaks that he's been helping Russian athletes dope and avoid detection for the Sochi Olympics. Um, prior to that, did you have any inkling that he might have been involved in anything dirty? Well, yes. I mean, he had uh, uh, the entire year that I was working with him while he was advising me on doping, there had been this German uh, television documentary, like a 60 Minutes piece that had come out in December of 2014. And this was about five months after I'd actually started talking to him and right at the time that I actually start doping myself. And he says, hey, have you seen this movie? And I haven't seen it. And this movie is alleging that Russia has a state-sponsored system. Um, the allegations are all confined to track and field because that was where these whistleblowers had come from. And this investigation is alleging that Gregory is, is very, very much a part of this. Um, and that launches WADA, the World Anti-Doping Agency, to launch an investigation into these allegations made in this German uh, television documentary. And so this investigation is going the entire year that Gregory is helping me. And so I'm constantly asking him, hey, what's going on with the investigation? What's going on? And, you know, and he would always be like, they're bugging me. Wada's after me. Wada. I mean, so it was a very, very constant thing. I was very aware of it. And at the same time, I was going and talking to the people who were investigating him as right. a documentary filmmaker. They had no idea that I was working with Gregory. Uh -huh. They had no idea I was doping. I was just approaching them as a documentary filmmaker that was making a film exploring anti-doping. But in these interviews, I would say, you know, um, what do you think about the Russia investigation? What's going on with it? Uh, what, you know, do you know uh, Gregory Rachenkov, et cetera? And so I was planting my, my foot uh, in in – you know, in, into the uh, arena, I guess. But at that point, you know, my trajectory was still to stay focused on my film. So what was the turning point when this documentary stopped being about you trying to prove that you could get away with doping and it became about this much wider and more sinister conspiracy? When November 2015 happens, which is this 335-page report, that alleges that he's essentially this mastermind of Russia's state-sponsored doping program, and there's 70 pages of this report about him in the lab. Um, and again, it's still confined to track and field. Again, at this point, it's a smoking gun. There's no bodies. There's no bullets. It's still largely allegations. Uh, but it's enough that he's forced to resign from the lab, the lab is provisionally suspended. All the employees are let go. Uh, Russia is suspended from international track and field. And, uh, and this is a huge scandal at this point. 
and as it quickly spirals out of control, your film takes a very cloak-and-dagger turn. The Russians think that if they can make Grigory go away, then they can make the scandal go away. He's in real danger, and he eventually has to flee for his life. How did you help him get out of Russia? We're on these Skype calls, as we had been doing, and he's telling me that uh, there's FSB agents living in his home. Uh, this is world news. I mean, CNN, I mean, every station you turn on is covering this. And in the Russian media, it is, this is wow. full on insanity. And he's telling me that, uh, that his friends at the FSB, the KGB, have told him uh, that they're planning his suicide. Wow. And, um, uh, and, and this is literally five days after this report. Uh, he tells me that he needs to escape and that he's going to be killed. And I put his plane ticket on my credit card. He had a visa to come to the United States because he'd been lecturing here at sports symposiums. And in a sheer act of kind of like mistiming that the scandal had just happened, Russia hadn't reacted, there was – they weren't thinking that he was going to flee. And he gets out with his visa and the ticket that I had purchased for him and uh, tells the guy who's guarding him that he's going to walk his dog and then has his son drive a getaway car. And he arrives in Los Angeles. And at that point, I still had no idea that I was essentially dealing with, with Snowden. Yeah, there are several comparisons made in the film between him and Snowden. Do you think that this scandal was as detrimental to Russia as Snowden was to the U.S. intelligence agencies? Every bit and possibly more because people really care about sports. And Russia, uh, you know, you, you think the United States is sports crazy. I mean, that's, that's what Russia has is yeah. sport. And sport there is controlled by the ministry, meaning it's still a government operation, sport, and the athletes are sponsored by the government. So this was a, a, a massive, massive uh, scandal, but the evidence that he brought forward, uh, aside from just um, uh, making a, a mockery of Sochi's Olympics, these $50 billion Olympics that Russia wins 33 medals at while he was literally swapping out the dirty steroid urine of Russian athletes and substituting it with clean urine in this spectacular criminal operation where they're breaking into the urine bottles and dumping out the urine and swapping in the urine. He had been involved in a system according to him, but dates back all the way to 1968, which is essentially that Russia never had anti-doping, according to him, that, that the entire system from day one was put in place essentially to look like there was anti-doping control in Russia, while the government was essentially assisting and mandating that every Russian athlete dope. <clears throat> so he wow. had put this system into place for the London Olympics, and he had all the spreadsheets and the evidence of, of for London. He had done it at Beijing. He had the spreadsheets and evidence for Beijing. He had done this in all the international competitions that had come into to Russia and totally had 1,700 documents of evidence. And this changes all of Olympic history because what it means is that every single medal where – 
a Russian athlete won and somebody else didn't win, if that athlete was clean, and who knows if they were, that's a whole other question, you know, it calls into question that the validity of all of Olympic history. Mm-hmm. And and so what Sochi was just the, the crowning achievement where they break into the vault, but you've got 40 years before that of this spectacular fraud. In the beginning, it's tempting for the viewer to condemn Gregory, but when you go deeper into his story as it relates to the old Soviet Olympics and their doping scheme, it it sort of sounds like there was a gun put to his head because didn't he start out as the guy who developed more effective testing methods and the guy who was actually trying to stop doping in the old Soviet athletics? Yeah, well, you know, and then I, he ends I, up in <clears throat> being arrested, right? Yeah, well, well, that's a whole other story, which is uh, essentially he crossed the wrong guy because mm-hmm. he was uh, selling clean steroids to the Russian athletes, and uh, and this coach was selling dirty steroids, so he could no longer protect the Russian national team. I see, which is a which is a whole other story, but but you know his you know, kind of Orwellian double think of everything he was doing was doping and anti-doping. Mm-hmm. So he's helping the athletes dope while at the same time he's developing anti-doping tests which are able to catch other athletes. And at the same time, he's developing protocols so that the Russian athletes can get through the tests that he's developing that are being able to that are being used for across international protocols, um, and so the entire thing was this spectacular cat and mouse game, and he was a brilliant scientist, um, and then the system really moved away from the science, and once they figured out that they could just open up these bottles, these the mm-hmm. urine bottles that the athletes. Uh, um, put their urine into and are sealed like a vault and nobody can open these outside of a lab Um, and these are like these tamper-proof bottles. And once Russia and the FSB uh, were able to develop a technique to break into these bottles, then the entire mentality changed because now it was no longer about how to evade detection. It was they could take all the drugs they wanted to and then they were just going to dump out the dirty urine and put in clean urine, mm-hmm. and uh, and nobody would be the wiser. Wow. And how far up the chain of command did this go? Are we talking Putin? Well, you know, look, I I wasn't uh, there. Uh, according to Gregory, according to the uh, uh, the investigations, which were major investigations that were then launched into his allegations and evidence, um, which have all been. Uh, according to Richard McLaren, uh, proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Uh, everything has been corroborated. And then there were forensic examination, scientific examination into all these bottles that that found salt in the urine, that found mm-hmm. scratches in the urine, that Gregory was answering to uh, Vitaly Mutko. And Vitaly right. Mutko at the time was the sports minister. Vitaly Mutko is also Putin's childhood friend. They yeah. Have, they are very, very, very close. And that is who Gregory was answering to. And he's now deputy minister of Russia, right? Right. So Today. when all this happened, in order to get Mutko out of the way, Putin made him the deputy prime minister, which is essentially the vice president mm-hmm. of Russia. Uh, Mutko only had one person that he could answer to, 
and that's Putin. So according to Gregory, the direction from Putin was win at all costs. I don't care how you do it, win. We're hosting these Olympics, but also next year's World Cup, Russia has to win. You know, when you look at the chain of command, you know, you go Gregory to this guy Nagornov, who's in the ministry. He's now resigned under criminal investigation. The next guy's Mutko, and the next guy is Putin. It certainly doesn't look like this could have been coming from yeah. anyone else. You met with the commission that investigated the Russian doping scandal to share what you had discovered with this film. What was their attitude? Were they mad? Were they embarrassed? How did they perceive this? I uh, I actually became the uh, um, Gregory's voice. I mm-hmm. uh, as we brought this story to the New York Times, and then they had to launch another investigation. Um, they all came to Los Angeles, and I literally sat there and presented the evidence to them. And I actually filmed the meeting to see to it that there would be no question as to whether or not this meeting happened, what was presented at this meeting. And Gregory had mandated and and, and I had mandated who was going to be at this meeting. So it was really intense. Um, you, you see in the film the, the faces of, of these people, which I liken to the realization at one moment, if you're a seven-year-old kid, that the Easter Bunny, Santa Claus, and the Tooth Fairy don't exist, you know. And, and for these people who understood this on a very, very deep level, I think a very sad moment uh, because— It's the, a failure on their part in some ways, I imagine. A failure on their part, um, absolutely, because I think there was a lot that probably could have been done had they wanted to pursue that. And that's a different story. And, of course, the Olympics and their reaction to the scandal, um, you know, uh, really calls into mm-hmm. question a, a lot of things of, of, of what best interest do they have at heart. And clearly it's not the best interest of the athletes. It's, it's the best interest of the money and the organization. Why do you think the IOC ignored WADA's recommendations and allowed the Russian athletes to participate in the 2016 Rio Olympics? You know, it's interesting because um, when the report, Richard McLaren's investigation, which happened because the story that we brought to the New York Times and all the evidence that was provided by Gregory, and when his investigation corroborated everything, um, to me, at that point, it was a no-brainer that of course, they Russia couldn't go to Rio. It was like, how could you let them go? Not that other athletes aren't taking substances, but the level of the fraud that had been uncovered and how they did it and the fact that they were literally breaking into these bottles. I mean, you know, just the the that level of criminality. And then that Thomas Bach, the president of the IOC, passed the buck and only the Track and Field Federation banned Russia from from the summer games, um, it was pretty shocking to see how an organization of this size and scope with these political and economic interests operate. And, you know, the stories that I heard behind the scenes was how the athlete's representative wasn't even included in the meeting as to whether or not uh, Russia would be uh, allowed to compete, that it was never even a, a question if Russia could compete, um, that was pretty startling to me. 
the Justice Department believes that Gregory would be the target of an assassination by the FSB. He's now in witness protection, presumably still separated from his family. Have you heard from him? Um, he's in protective custody, Okay, which uh, for him is not as good as witness protection. He's basically uh, our government, the Department of Justice, is deciding what they're going to do with all this information that he's brought forward. And, you know, A, it's incredibly important, I think, that our government continues to protect him uh, because if whistleblowers like Gregory, regardless of their involvement in, 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 in these scandals, are not essentially free to come forward with this information, um, the United States stops being that, that you know, uh, a bastion to do that. Um, but um, I haven't uh, been able to speak to him. I haven't been able to see him. Uh, I've been able to keep tabs on him through his legal counsel, and he's okay. And I've been told that his family is currently okay in Russia, but yeah. uh, it's uh, it's an ongoing situation. Wow. Well, again, the film is called Icarus. It opens August 4th on Netflix and in theaters. Brian Fogel, thanks for joining me. Thank you so much, Ben. Thanks again to Brian Fogle for coming on the podcast. Once more, his documentary Icarus comes out in select theaters and on Netflix this Friday, August 4th. For more information, visit netflix.com. Keep up with Brian at Brian spelled with a Y, Fogel.com, and you can follow him on Twitter at, at Brian Fogel. Be sure to subscribe to Kickass News on iTunes and leave us a review while you're there. Don't forget to take our listener survey. It only takes five minutes at podsurvey.com slash kick. You can visit Kickass News on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at kickassnewspod. And be sure to recommend Kickass News to your friends on your social media. And if you really want to help out, then donate to our GoFundMe campaign at gofundme.com slash kickassnews or click on the donate button at kickassnews.com. As always, I welcome your comments, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. For now, though, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kickass News. Kick-Ass News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.